be seated. How many of you, to be honest, um, and you're not confessing that you're mean or aggressive or hateful or anything like this, but how many of you, on occasion, you, you would just like to be in a fight? All right. After the service, me and you. Uh, no, uh, not just physically, like just, you know, fighting for justice, fighting to make your point. Just, you know, you want to be in the mix. I, I think most of us, we kind of deep down inside like that, and that's why we're attracted, not just to movies that involve the military, but movies that would involve maybe, uh, you know, police trying to find the crook or the lawyers who are duking it out, so to speak, in court, trying to bring about justice. There's something inside of you and there's something inside of me that that I think rightly, on occasion, in appropriate situations, wants to fight. Now, I'm getting some smiles up here. It's like, we're not talking about marital fights, you guys. Uh, although, you know, maybe on occasion, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's another message altogether. Uh, well, you know, just speaking about fights, even interpersonally, you know, uh, I, I have seen, unfortunately, uh, relationships come to an end. And most of the time when the relationship ends, it's not in a fight. It, it, it ends with a whisper. Uh, there is something that is entirely appropriate about being fully engaged that sometimes just comes out with intensity. The problem is in the, in the middle of our fights or desires to go to war, when the bombs are falling and the bullets are flying and the smoke is everywhere, we get a little bit off, we get a little bit out of sync, and, and we start shooting sometimes, maybe in, unintentionally in the wrong direction. And when we get off and we forget who the enemy is really, here's what happens. People get hurt or even killed in the crossfire. Uh, th this happens in rather, I don't know, mundane ways where maybe a couple of lawyers are duking it out and, and one of them's trying to fight for justice and so maybe crosses a line of the law that he's supposed to uphold or she's supposed to uphold and in the process they lose their license and the crook gets off and it's just unfortunate we lose our way sometimes. In the military, people get killed in friendly fire. This happens quite a bit. About 2% of all casualties in war, at least 2% of all casualties in war, are estimated to come from, from friendly fire. The first Army pilot and back before, uh, during World War II, there was no you know, Air Force. It was just the Army had pilots. And the first pilot who shot down the enemy aircraft that was coming on the attack of Pearl Harbor was a man named Lieutenant uh, John L. Uh, Gaines. And uh, this person shot down the enemy, and as soon as he shot down the enemy, he got shot down, but he got shot down by friendly fire. This sort of thing happens. It's unfortunate. And so on occasion, what we need to do is remind ourselves of some basic truths. And this morning, what I want to do is turn our attention to a text that does remind us of something we need to know, but oftentimes forget. So I'm just simply reminding you of something that you already know, but you didn't know that you needed to know this all the time. And what we are doing is refocusing on who our actual enemy is. And in this passage, we get reminded of the direction in which we appropriately fight and the weapons with which we uh, combat the enemy. And we remember that in the midst of all of our fights and conflicts, whatever particular shape they take, the real enemy, it's never, ever people. 
The people are the ones that we fight for, ultimately, though they're not the enemy. Now, with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The text is uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 21. And uh, we're going to be in this passage for uh, a few weeks, but today we're going to at least introduce a few concepts. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. May God bless, reading his word, and may be seated. Uh, now, as I said, I'm just simply going to remind us of some things that we ought to know. And, and so I'm just going to be very, very basic this morning uh, by way of introduction to the text. And so I want to talk about four major overarching truths concerning spiritual warfare. And I'm going to lay them out for you real plainly here at the front, and then we're going to spend some time unpacking these things that are taught in the Bible here. Uh, one is we have an enemy that is unseen. But number two, uh, we live on a battlefield. Number three, what that means is we're soldiers. And then number four, in this fight, we fight together. Very simple. First off, we do have an enemy that is unseen. Now, every once in a while when I start talking about this, about the devil and all the rest... I can sense that even within the church, there are people who lean a little bit toward naturalistic materialism. And if you're a naturalistic materialist, you have this tendency to think that you can only believe in what you see. Uh, the, the problem is you're philosophically inconsistent if you're a naturalistic materialist because there's nothing in all of nature that you can see that can demonstrate you should only believe in what you can see. And most of the people who are pure naturalistic materialists actually believe in things that they can't see or when something else is learned that they didn't see before, now they can believe that what they knew before they didn't actually believe to be true. Now that was not a whole mouthful, but I'm just saying there's naturalistic materialism is self-referentially incoherent. You apply that philosophy to that philosophy and the philosophy just blows apart. But forget the philosophy. Let's talk theology here for a second. Do you believe in the supernatural or the metanatural? Do you believe that there's something beyond nature? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in a personal good? Well, if you believe in the personal good of God, then on what basis would you ever say, I don't believe in a supreme personal bad? But beyond that, let's just think about Jesus. Uh, when, when I run into people who kind of doubt the devil, and most people, they'll believe in Jesus or they believe in heaven and all of the rest, but for some reason we can't believe in the devil, why, why in the world would you be picking and choosing? 
Do you believe Jesus when he says, love your neighbor as yourself? Do you believe the golden rule? Do you believe in the teachings of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount? People say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, on what basis do you say, well, I just can't believe Jesus when he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He says that in Luke 10, 18. Is Jesus crazy? Is he nuts? You know, is he off his rocker? Can you believe him or not? We can't go picking and choosing. We've got to be consistent philosophically, theologically, consistent with regards to Jesus. And so when we come to the Apostle Paul talking about we're battling against all these spiritual forces, why would we doubt all of this? Especially when we take into consideration the audience to which Paul is writing or the particular context. Okay, let's think this one through. Paul is writing to believers who are in Ephesus. Here's what we know about Ephesus. It is a city, was a city, that was thoroughly dominated by pagan religions, by the occult. The chief religion in Ephesus was was this cult of uh, Artemis Ephesia, that's the Greek, or in the Roman it would be the cult of Diana of Ephesus. She was the goddess of goddesses in the region. It was, it was widespread, the worship of Artemis or Diana, however you choose to, to call her. And there in that city was the Artemisium. This, this was the, the grand temple that housed the, the big uh, representation, the, the idol, multi-breasted idol of, of Artemis. It was 93,500 square feet, this temple. Had 127 columns, 60 feet high. It was a massive structure. If you want to know what the seven wonders of the ancient world were, I don't know all of them, but one that's commonly missed is the Artemisium. It's one of the wonders, seven wonders of the ancient world. It's there in Ephesus. Everything centers around Diana. And when people worship Diana, they worship her as the supreme deity, the, the goddess that is above all gods, that is even more powerful than astrological faith and certainly all of the evil spirits. That's what's going on in Ephesus. On top of all of this, what we know is it's a center of of magic. When it came to any of the cities of the ancient Greco-Roman world, this was the city that was most hospitable to magicians, astrologers, occultists, and all of the rest. It's also a city that was known for its amulets that people would wear around their necks or around their wrists that that had these words called Ephesia. Uh, Gramata, these little words that were written on the amulets that would somehow protect them from evil spirits and give them help in times of need. It was a very occultic town. On top of all of this, the Jews in this city had given into the occult. Many of them were kind of, you know, dualistic in their allegiances, much like you would see Santeria maybe on the border. Yeah, 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 we're Catholic and, you know, we, we worship the devil. Like, how does that work out? I don't know. But that was going on in Ephesus. You had people who were devout Jews who were also simultaneously practicing the occult and spiritism and sorcery. Paul comes to this city, and it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 19. When he gets there, he just sees this metropolis that's overrun by the occult and the worship of deities and the supernatural and magic. You can read all about it in Acts chapter 19. My, my point in bringing this up is... Paul is very familiar with the, the culture of Ephesus. It's a group of people that is quite familiar with and in their worldview buys into all of the supernaturalism and the occult. In fact, as Paul is there for almost three years, for three months he preaches in the synagogue and for two years he's teaching in the school of Tyrannus and during that time he's proclaiming the gospel and the gospel is going forth and the darkness is being pushed back in these extraordinary ways. And people as they're coming to Christ 
are repenting of their occultic activity. You read about this here in Acts chapter 19. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the Lord of the, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So in Ephesus, as people began to come to Jesus, they're turning away from Diana and other occultic practices, magic practices, to the, to the extent that when Christians are turning away not only from their religious activities, but from economic activities, including the purchase of idols, a riot breaks out because people are losing revenue. They're, they're, people are not paying as much money for the, the false uh, idols and the amulets and all of the rest. So a riot breaks out, and this is toward the end of Paul's time there in, in Ephesus. He's about to leave anyways. So he's there for three years. So when the Apostle Paul writes to these Ephesians, this letter, the book of Ephesians, he understands their struggles. He understands their concerns. And he does nothing to diminish in any way any of their beliefs concerning the supernatural, the dark forces of evil. You see that especially when he says, and he just reinforces this, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, the Apostle Paul is not acting as the parent who just kind of assures the children, oh, there are no monsters under the bed. If you're feeling guilty about your time and they've called, hey, don't worry about it. None of that stuff's real. Or if you're, you're feeling a little uneasy about these spirits of darkness, don't worry about it. None of that stuff is real. He doesn't say that at all. In fact, he takes the opposite direction. He says, yeah, yeah, this is all real. In fact, that's really where the battle lies. But I'm going to give you some word of encouragement concerning the weapons that are at your disposal. So whether you're concerning what Paul says on face value and when you are considering basically the context in which he writes all of this and you add it up with what Jesus teaches, that we have an enemy like a lion who's prowling around seeking those who can, whom he can devour. When he's come to steal, kill, and destroy, when you think about consistency philosophically and theologically, there's absolutely something that comes across crystal clear in the Bible the New Testament in particular. We have an enemy. And the enemy is unseen. And that's why we have to be reminded of the enemy's presence. Because we do have an enemy who's unseen. That's the first thing we need to remember. Second is this. We live on a battlefield. We have an enemy who's unseen. He's trying to take us out. We live on a battlefield. And the Apostle Paul wants to be very upfront with the Ephesians about this. And here's why. The first part of the book... Especially the, the couple of chapters prior to chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Ephesians about the kind of community that God wants them to build together. He's talking about the body of Christ and this holy temple of living stones that have been knit together and all of the rest. And he's talking about you know, creating this heavenly outpost on earth, a, kind of a, uh, a, a preview of the fullness of the kingdom of God that is yet to come. And as Paul is telling the church about the community that God expects for them to build together. He comes to this point and he says, finally, I just want you to know, as you're constructing this heavenly outpost, you're doing it in enemy territory. And you need to know that. Now, there are all kinds of implications for this, but I want you to think this one through. If you did not know that you were in enemy territory, that would maybe change your attitude or disposition toward what's going on around you. Let's put it like this. Suppose you send out some masons and carpenters and say, I want you to build this outpost. I want you to build this fortress. 
and uh, you're masons, you're carpenters, you know what to do. Here are the blueprints, here are the plans, here's the place that I've designated for you, now go for it. And then you say, oh, oh, yeah, and by the way, I forgot to tell you, almost forgot to tell you, you're doing this in enemy territory, and the enemy's going to come, and they're going to try to take you out, and they're going to try to destroy you. You know what you're going to say? You're going to say, well, that's really unfortunate, but that's good news to know because, uh, hey, it's a safety tip. And uh, we're probably going to do things a little bit differently. Since we are in enemy territory, that's going to change the way in which we allocate our time and some of our expectations. Instead of building, you know, the buildings first and then the wall last, maybe we'll start with the wall first because we're in enemy territory. It's going to make a difference in the way in which you go about your business. That's precisely what Paul is communicating here. Most concretely, let's read this again. Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Why? Why, why, why do I have to put on the full armor of God? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's got a scheme. He's got a plan. He's wanting to take you out. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Why? He explains it. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your stand or stand your ground. Now, what is it when Paul says the evil day? What does he mean when the evil day comes or the day of evil comes? Paul doesn't really elaborate here, but I can tell you that I think I know what that is and you probably know what that is. And that is you probably have these days every once in a while, maybe, especially if you're active on the battlefield, where you just kind of sense there's some sort of cloud following me. And... uh, I'm feeling temptation or, you know, maybe depression or maybe uh, there's a cloud of, of uh, you can't do this or it's egging you on. And in those moments, on occasion, you just kind of feel like, frankly, this was an evil day. And you see that, not just with yourself, but you may have children or grandchildren or you have friends or spouses or people at work. And you just go, well, that was an evil day. If you don't have the context, the greater context, the vision in mind that the Apostle Paul gives, here's what's going to happen. You're going to wonder what in the world is going on. Because if you think that your battle is only against flesh and blood, here's how you're going to process things. Suppose you're on the outer wall and you're kind of, you know, building it up and you've got a brick in your hand and then, you know, just blows apart in your hands. Or you see other things chipping and you go, what's going on here? Well, if you didn't know that you had an enemy coming against you, that they were actually, you know, shooting from the bushes you'd see that break fall apart and you might say something like well you know bad stuff happens to me i don't know i'm jinxed i always pick the worst lot of the bricks it's you know it's just the way it is or i've got these friends and they're playing pranks on me because the people on the south wall they had a contest with those of us on the north wall and they're just playing a prank i've got exploding bricks or so i don't know what's going on and if all you have is flesh and blood, and that's basically where your theories start of what's going on. It's either me, or it's this person next to me, or it's those people over there. And the Apostle Paul says, if you ever feel like you're under attack, don't think that you're being paranoid. If somebody's out, if you feel like someone unseen is out to get you, it just may be because someone's out to get you. And even if you would attribute a lot of what's going on to the other people, or to yourself, and maybe rightly so, on occasion, you've got to understand that there is a groundwork beneath the ground, that there is something behind the something. And the Apostle Paul reminds us, it's not people who are the enemy. It's not you. You're a part of a cosmic battle. There's a conflict going on. And I find this especially refreshing to be coming from the Apostle Paul because he's had all kinds of conflict in his life. He's been imprisoned. He's had people stone him to basically a near-death experience. He's had people persecute him and flog him. 
he has stood before, you know, Festus, and he's gone to see, you know, the Caesar and all the rest. And in Paul's mind, even these people who imprison him and beat him and want to kill him, they're not the enemy. Those are the people that Paul's fight, fighting for. And he keeps this in mind and he recognizes, my conflict is not and never has been with flesh and blood. There's something else going on here. This is so important to keep in mind. You have an enemy. I have an enemy. We're living on a battlefield that changes our expectations and the way in which we go about life and the way in which we relate to people. But number three, what that means is we're soldiers. We're people who are not surprised by conflict because that's what soldiers do. We fight. Now, we fight with weapons like prayer, okay, and faith. It's not angry hateful fighting, okay? But we do fight because we're soldiers. We sense the conflict and we embrace the conflict. Now, a lot of times, especially around churches, places of worship, people say things, oh, I thought the the main proof that you were a believer is this peace, this peace that you get. And I I don't want to disagree with that necessarily because the Bible says that, you know, the peace of God, this is, you know, Philippians, that, you know, peace of God will guard your hearts and minds of Christ Jesus, the peace that transcends all understanding. And in in Romans, it talks about, in chapter 5, it talks about how When you have faith in Christ, you have peace with God. And and one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, it's peace. You say, well, I thought that was just about peace. And once I become a Christian, I'm just at peace and I'm settled. Okay, I'm not going to disagree with that. But you've got to recognize that the Bible is equally insistent, equally demanding that when you come to Christ and you move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you enter into the same conflict. Of which Jesus is a part. You change sides. And the side from which you've moved. Is going to continue to be out to get you. There is a conflict. It's a conflict in your soul. It's a conflict of transformation. It's a conflict of daily repentance. It's a conflict where you're fighting. For the benefit of other people. You're in a battle. And when you're a soldier. You are not surprised. By difficulty. You're not surprised by deprivation. You expect it. Because as a soldier, it's not about you. And the commander on occasion will send you out in the field of battle knowing this is going to be difficult. I I don't think that we have a single commander in any force in the military that would say, you know, I sent that person out of the battle expecting that they were going to be comfortable. The, The primary concern of the commander of the general is never the comfort of the soldier as they're being sent out to battle. So there's peace, yes, but there's also conflict. I came across something that was written by uh, by a, a bishop, an Anglican bishop, and uh, J.C. Ryle, and I thought this was really, really good. He puts it very well. I'm just going to read it word for word because it was so powerful. There are thousands of men and women who go to chapels and churches every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They are reckoned Christians while they live. They are married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion and conflict and self-denial and watching and warring, they know literally nothing at all. Let us consider these propositions. The saddest symptom about many so-called Christians is the utter absence of anything like conflict or fight. They eat, they drink, they dress, they work, they amuse themselves, they get money, they spend money. 
They go through a scanty round of formal religious services once or even twice a week. But the great spiritual warfare, it's watchings and strugglings, it's agonies and anxieties, it's battles and contests. Of all this, they appear to know nothing at all. Further on, he remarks, do you find in your heart of hearts a spiritual struggle? Are you conscious of two principles within you contending for mastery? Do you feel anything of war in your inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. A real Christian can be known as much by his inward warfare as by his inward peace. That's kind of convicting, isn't it? And, and it doesn't all, the, the fight doesn't always manifest itself in a, in a way where you're angry or, or hateful or anything like that. But, but to be honest with you, there ought to be these occasions where it just it turns in your stomach. Lord, can I do more? It, it, it makes you lose sleep when you think about that brother or that sister or that family member who doesn't know Jesus or the person next door or the person at work. And you're just thinking, you know, what in the world can I do? If you go through weeks or months and all you have is peace, I would suggest that that's not exactly the peace of the Holy Spirit. That's just more along the lines of complacency of a soldier that's lost their way. I, I don't know what it's like to be at retirement. I'm probably going to be preaching for at least another 30 years. Uh, I, I was explaining to Alan earlier that as I get older, I actually feel younger. When I was 30, I used to remember that I would forget a lot of things. But now I forget enough to know that the last time I forgot something, that's the only time I can remember ever forgetting anything. And so it's, it's like I'm getting younger and younger as I go. I don't know at what point I'm going I'm to retire or going to quit or whatever. But I was reminded today in an email of, uh, of, J- of uh, Jacob who was kind of blessing all of his family right up until the very end of his life. I, uh, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't do this. I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be unkind or, or, or stir things up in a, in a bad way. This isn't being unkind. I just went to a, a funeral service uh, this last week for, for both of Glenn's parents and it was, it was sad. And, uh, but 99 and 98, and just got the very distinct impression that they served the Lord and were ringing the church bell and doing communion until they literally couldn't do it anymore. I can't help it. I'm not even going to look up here, but I, I do think about Zeke. And, you know, he was there serving all the way uh, with regards to, you know, just ministering to people in practical ways and sending out the texts and praying for people and, you know, the, just beautiful you know, I want to be that person that in kindness and with joy and with faith is fighting to the very end. You know why? Because we're soldiers. And that is never, ever going to change. And it's a joy to fight. And, and let me tell you why it is a joy to fight. Because uh, the, the victory is ours. I'll bring us to the, to the fourth point. Listen, we, we have an enemy. We live on a battlefield. We're soldiers, but we get to do this, you know, basically together. And, and the reason that this is a joy and, and very, very plain in the text, let me just mention several things here, that we do it together. So where, where do you see that we get to fight together and that's somehow sort of a joy? Well, look, 
it's very difficult sometimes to translate it from the Greek to the English. In fact, it's impossible because one of the things that gets lost is the second personal, uh, second person personal pronoun you. Like you can have you individual or you all, and here it's you all. You all should put on the full armor of God. You all should stand. You all should take up. You all should pray. You all should do everything that I'm telling you that you need to do. It's very collective. Now, you would expect that normally, since Paul's not just addressing one individual, he's talking to everybody at one time. Of course, that's normal. But here's what it's, it really drives it home, and that is, we know that he wants us to fight together, because notice part of the armor that's missing. There is no, you know, backplate of hope or some rear guard of joy. Your backside is completely exposed. Did you notice that? There's no backside protection. You know what that implies? The backside protection are the people who are fighting with you. You don't need something behind you because your brothers and your sisters who are fellow soldiers are in the fight with you. They've got your back. I, uh, I, I do like The Lord of the Rings. I've not read the trilogy. In fact, I've only read the, the first book, and it was not as joyful as I thought it was going to be. Okay, just to be honest with you. But... but uh, so I quit, and I started reading it to my kids, and I would read it on my own. I thought, you know, I'm not going to work all the way through this. I'll just get, kind of get back to the Bible or something. And so, but in the first book, The Fellowship of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien portrays this group of people. They're very diverse. You know, you've got the elves and the, you know, hobbits and the dwarves and human beings, and they all get together in this fellowship of the ring. And this fellowship of the ring is formed for a common purpose of defeating the dark lord who has bested all of his, you know, evil in this ring, and they're out to destroy the ring. Well, along the way, and this is not portrayed very well in the first movie, this fellowship of the ring, they have this fight break out amongst themselves, and the swords are drawn, and the axes are held high, and the bows are bent, and it, it's about to be a disaster. The fellowship of the ring is about to fall apart, but, but somehow, in some way, peace settles back down over the group. And then you get this wonderful word from one of the counselors, and we've got it up on the screen, I believe. Indeed, in nothing is the power of the dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides those who still oppose him. That just, I don't know, man, that gives me chills. You, you, you want to know that we have an enemy? Here's how you see his presence. It's in the estrangement that divides those who still oppose him. And I come to that book or come to the movie and you go, well, wait, if hobbits and elves and dwarves and humankind can get together fighting the dark lord, well, you would think that Christians, especially those under the same roof, kind of stay together and have one another's backs, despite peripheral differences on things that really don't matter. It's not in God's plan that we ever divide. We stay united. That's how we fight is together. And we fight with absolute confidence, always back, marching forward, never backwards. We don't have protection on your backside, not only because others have your back, but because we were never designed to run. The retreat is not an option. You know why it's not an option? You know why we don't have armor for the backside? One of the reasons is because the victory's already been won. Jesus Christ on the cross already defeated Satan. This comes across so plainly in so many places. Let's look at our Lord. Our Lord is is looking forward to the crucifixion, not necessarily with great anticipation, but he is looking toward the crucifixion, and here's what he says. He says, now my soul is troubled. He's praying to the Lord, to the Father. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is what I came 
That's what I came for. That is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What we have to see is what Jesus saw. And that is that the crucifixion amounted to the moment of this of the enemies casting out in cosmic judgment. Years later, decades later, the Apostle John is reflecting upon the cross of Jesus Christ. And he says, the Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works. According to this passage here, John understood that part of our salvation experience is recognizing that because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we've already been removed from underneath the dominion and the power of Satan. Elsewhere, we read things like this. Jesus, through the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. The battle's been won. Hebrews explains it like this. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil and free those who were held in slavery all of their lives for fear of death. Clearly, Satan's been defeated because the cross of Jesus Christ, in one sense, the serpent's head has already been crushed under the heel. And yet in another sense, we do have these other passages like what we find in Romans where it says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And this is a little bit confusing, but here's what we know. We live in the already not yet. In a very real sense, the war has turned. The moment has happened. The victory has been won. That doesn't mean that they're not still skirmishes and that we don't still battle. But the reason we continue to fight is because we know the victory has been assured. On occasion, it's actually very smart if you know that you've been defeated to stop fighting. You know, I know, I know Conor McGregor just got defeated in the second round, but I still don't want to fight the guy. And if at a certain point it looks like you're going down in the fight, the ref's going to step in. The, the, the umpire, the judge is going to stop the fight. Because they recognize it's over. All you're going to do if you keep fighting, if you've already been defeated, is get your brain even further damaged. But we continue to fight because we recognize not only is the fight not over for us, the fight is actually over in Christ. We're on the winning side. And when you have that confidence, no matter what it is that comes next, you still continue to march forward because you recognize where this is going and what has already occurred. You never quit. You never retreat. You never divide because that's how the army of the Lord functions. In Christ who has already won the battle because of the cross. I came across this really interesting uh, little story from a, a lady named Lexi Fowler. And she has a sheep ranch in southern Montana. And she said that she tried everything to keep the sheep from getting killed by the coyotes. Tried odor sprays and electric fences and something called scare coyotes. I don't even know what that is. Didn't work. She tried sleeping out in the field like the old days, only with battery-operated radios around so she could hear commotion. Didn't happen. Didn't work. Uh, Lambs still got slaughtered. She would try herding during the day and sheltering them at night. Didn't work. About 50 lambs every year were still getting killed by coyotes, no matter what she tried. Then she tried something that was common in South America. She got llamas. And here's what llamas do. When llamas see something that they don't necessarily feel comfortable around, they just, you know, stick up their little long neck and then they march forward. Coyotes take that as a sign of aggression and then they turn tail and run because coyotes are not actually looking for a fight. 
They're just opportunists. That's what believers do. We see the enemy. We stand up straight. We take our stand. And then when we've done everything we can possibly do, we stand. But we don't retreat. You move forward. Because Satan's already been defeated. And anytime he actually wins in some little battle, it's only because we have forgotten he's only an opportunist. He's not the victor and never will be. So we have an enemy. We live on a battlefield. We're soldiers. And we fight together, never retreating. These are really, really important things for us to remember because commonly, here's what happens. You look around and go, oh, you know, look at what happened this last week or look what happened across the street or look at my neighborhood or look what's going on in school. And we have this tendency to just kind of want to back down or we want to sit down and we don't want to necessarily engage because we have been deceived into thinking that Satan has not actually already been defeated and that somehow we're in a losing fight and we just need to wholly huddle up and, you know, we'll just kind of try to survive this until one day we die or get to retire and move somewhere else. And that is the wrong attitude altogether. If that's in your mind, I just want to back down. I want to quit. I want to stop doing this. I'm not looking for ways to engage. If that's the mindset, it's because you're not seeing what Paul wants you to see. The unseen. There's a constant conflict. Let's be on the right side. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the weapons that have been given to us and how to employ them effectively. Uh, for now, let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer. God, thank you for involving us in the good fight. And, and it's still not comfortable. It is a field of battle. We are getting shot at. But it's not only about us. It's about the, the lambs around us also that in many respects are getting slaughtered. And like Jesus saw, the, the fields are, are, are ripe for the harvest, but the laborers are few. And, and he looked at the, the crowds as sheep without a shepherd, just exposed. We do not, as believers who've been giving the, given the peace of Jesus Christ, we don't back down, we don't back off, we don't become complacent, we don't become fatalistic. We actually need to continue to stand, to stand firm, and then just to march forward for the sake of others who need to come to the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be hateful about anything. We're not anybody, anyone's enemy in terms of flesh and blood. We can fight with these weapons of faith and, and truth and mercy and salvation and the gospel and prayer. This is not a bad thing to be a soldier in an army like yours. But what is so sad is that strangely, for some reason, we have a tendency to give up the fight. May it not be so with us. And I don't know what this means for every one of us in this room. For some of us, it just means to re-up and re-engage as best we can Maybe it means connection to a small group. Maybe it means a, a desire to get in the work. Maybe it's just a, what can I do in terms of supporting a ministry? Not, even if it's not under the roof of the church, it doesn't matter. Maybe it's through jail or prison or starting something in a neighborhood. I don't know. But I just pray that all of us here would fight the good fight with the confidence that you've given us in the way that is appropriate for believers. Or be with us as we continue in this series, speak to our hearts, change our minds, and give us confidence that belongs to people who are under a commander 
like Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You stand as we continue in worship. I'll be here at the front to talk with you and pray with you. But you remain open to God and to His Holy Spirit as we continue in worship.